Welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. So at this point, we typically talk about our sponsors, but today we have a favor to ask. Instead of sponsors, we would love for you to forward this to just one of your friends that you think might find this interesting. Kurt, is that it? Just forward this episode or another one to a friend? Yep, that's it. That's a pretty low bar there, dude. <laughs> we, we are the low bar experts, Tim. That's that's what I have to say. So in this episode, we talked with Sarita Parikh, Director of Consumer Experience and Strategy at GED Testing Services, a business that helps adults use education as a path to a better life. The GED, which stands for General Education Development, is a series of tests administered in the United States and Canada for people who don't matriculate through high school, but gives them accreditation that they're on the same footing as those who completed secondary school. Yeah, so Sarita's job is to develop and apply behavioral science interventions to help the million or so people who begin the GED every year to get them to finish. Uh, Completion rates are historically only about 20%, and using the model that she and her team have developed, GED completion rates are on the rise. Yeah, that's pretty great. And Sarita's model is really straightforward, and it relies on only three simple steps to help encourage completion of the GED. The first one is glide, or to remove friction. The second, nudge, to address the cognitive biases that we all have. And third, challenge, to change the mindset of the learners. All of those are important. Yeah. Well, you know, we had a great time talking about the future of education, nature versus nurture, and the importance of destigmatizing the myths that permeate what many people think of those taking the GED. When Sarita isn't thinking about consumer behavior, she's either teaching her children the art of the pun, yeah, <laughs> working on her daily step count, or unrolling her yoga mat. Ohm to that. Ohm to that. <laughs> it was an energetic and engaging discussion that we hope you, our listeners, enjoy. And again, if you haven't already paused, pause. We're back. This episode to <laughs> share it, please do so. And if you know what, if you're feeling extra groovy, write us a review. That that would go a long way in spreading the word about behavioral grooves. Even if you're not feeling groovy, just write us a damn review. <laughs> That's right. Write the damn review. At that, uh, and with that, but please sit back and enjoy our captivating conversation with Sarita Parikh. Welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast, Sarita Parikh. Hi. Good morning. Good morning, and good to have you here. How are you this morning? Uh, you know, it's Friday, and it's September in Minnesota, which is the most beautiful month in Minnesota. Uh, it's I, like, I think it's like Hawaii outside. It's breezy, and it's warm, and it's beautiful. So I'm kind of on cloud nine. I agree. Now, Tim, you can't say that because you're not here this week. No, I'm in Nashville, and so uh, it's warm and breezy, but Hawaii is not coming to mind for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Rita, we're going to get started with a with a speed round. Okay, great. Would you prefer to live by the beach or the mountains? Mountains. Okay. Coffee or tea? Holy moly. <laughs> asking someone to choose between their children. <laughs> this is usually not a difficult question for folks, but obviously. I would say before 7 a.m. coffee and after 10 a.m. tea. Okay, life without a mobile phone or life without a laptop? Holy moly, <laughs> these questions. Uh, 
life without a mobile phone would be far more difficult. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, doing a podcast in a living room or via Zoom? I would say living room because <laughs> I listened to your podcast and I've heard about this dining room and <laughs> it sounds beautiful. So I feel like after this, uh, you guys should invite me over for tea and coffee and, tea and coffee. Uh, in the dining room. Yes. Okay. Well, Tim, Tim is not a coffee guy, so we will, we might just have to do tea. Well, we could do both. I mean, I, I, yeah. I feel like you're missing out on one of the great joys of life. Okay. Nice. So knowledge for its own sake or knowledge for the purpose of earning a degree? Oh, I'm a nerd. Knowledge for its own sake. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so that, that leads into some of your work, uh, your, your, your current work on, uh, on working with GED students. Yes. And, and could we start, so we're going to be talking about the GED quite a bit because it's really central to, to your work. So can we start, could you give a definition for, uh, for the listeners outside of the U.S., since about half of our listeners are outside of the U.S., what is the GED and what does it mean sort of socially and academically uh, in the world? And then we can talk about your work. Uh, so the GED is a program for adults who didn't finish high school. And it's a path for them to earn their high school diploma. And our mission at the GED is, uh, it's of course, to help people get their high school diplomas, but I think it goes far beyond that. It's actually to move more people out of poverty and into the middle class. And, um, you know, what's really interesting right now is that uh, the labor market is really good. You don't need education. You don't need a high school diploma to get a job. Uh, if you want a job, you can get a job. The problem is that the wages are not family sustaining wages. So you can find work, but it's not work that will support your family. And in fact, um, you know, there aren't a lot of opportunities without education. And so our mission is making sure that, or is helping more people really build the skills they need for career and for college, not just for jobs. And that means critical thinking skills, uh, digital literacy skills, problem solving skills. These are all skills that are foundational so that when you move into career, when you move into college, into post-secondary education, that you've got those foundational skills to be successful. And um, a few years ago, we overhauled the GED to align to those goals. So we really moved away from kind of rote learning, which has historically been the GED, maybe through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And we moved more towards these you know, 21st century workforce skills um, knowledge economy. And when we did that, um, we really centralized the whole program. And we learned something really fascinating that we didn't know before. We learned that, uh, that over a million people come into the GED world every year. And so that's through uh, adult education classes that are federally funded. Uh, we work with state agencies, we work with public school systems all over the country. And um, so either people come into classrooms or they come in online through GED.com. And of those million plus people, um, most of them don't take any material steps to earn their GED. They don't do anything. They don't do anything materially. And so for every person who earns their diploma, there are at least two or three people who don't take any material steps at all. And we didn't know that before. We had thought um, for a long time, we sort of thought it was just the steady state of like people come in and they study, they go to class, they earn their diploma and then they go on. Um, and so that really opened our eyes to just how many people are interested and want it, um, but aren't making progress on their goals. So Sarita, what would be a material step? What would be something that you would look to, to say there is a material step that they're moving forward to get their GED? 
That's a great question. So maybe taking a practice question or taking a practice test or um, studying some of the, the topics. Um, one of the things that we've learned that's really interesting is that people have, in, especially in the United States, there's a really significant fear of math. And, um, and so people will start with math and they'll do a few practice questions and then they're out. Um, I, terrified. I have that fear of math too. You have that fear of math. <laughs> <laughs> Even after my PhD, it's still a part. That, and I think this, I, I'm joking, right, to a certain degree, but I think that's very true. I think we tend to have this, uh, you know, and I think Thaler and Kahneman talk about some of that, the, the, the inability for um, people, adults, regardless of educational component, to be able to really do math easy for the most part, right? Particularly once it gets past some of the simpler functions. Statistics, probabilities, those types of things don't come as naturally to us as maybe language acquisition and various different other pieces of it. So I can understand where that fear um, is probably very powerful, particularly for those who haven't necessarily, you know, had success in the past around that or around education in, in general, so. Right, right, that's right. I will say um, it's different for our kids today because uh, Carol Dweck's work around mindset, yes. like, you know, almost all math curriculum in public schools today talk about strategies. So, you know, if when we learned math, we sort of learned, here's how you do it. Here's how you do long division. Here's how you do prime factors or whatever. Now it's, um, it's amazing how, like when kids are sort of left to be able to sort of sort through different approaches on their own, you see how different brains work. It's really fascinating. So yeah, it hopefully, hopefully that math thing is something that sort of fades away. That, that, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. That will be interesting. So I went last night, um, my, my son had his, his class or school had a walk in their shoes thing. And so you went and you went to their advisory course and you got 10 minutes there and then 10 minutes the next one, next one, next one. So we went to his math class and, and he's in a, He's in an accelerated math program and various different things. But what was really interesting is up around the room, there were these green laminated sheets that I was like looking at them. My wife pointed them out to me and I go, oh my gosh, this is Carol Dweck. This is all this thing. You know, I thought math is hard. I can change that to, I, if I work on some problems, I'll get to it. I, and I'm misquoting these, but they were all over the classroom. All of these elements of looking at a, at a growth mindset as opposed to that fixed mindset. And so I hopefully you're right, Sarita. I think that, you know, hopefully that is a learned component and not um, you know, some element within our, our DNA that is yeah. driving that math component. I think the other thing that's fascinating about it is they don't just use the strategies, they actually explicitly talk about the strategies. They explicitly talk about, and this is actually something we do with the GD when we talk about what we do. Um, very explicitly that like perhaps your belief is X, but really you can shift your belief to Y. And you know, it's amazing that you, it's not just you actually bring the meta piece in. You talk about that with your, with the, your reader too. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So, so uh, this is a huge gap, right? With a million people starting uh, to get their diploma, their, the equivalent of their high school diploma every year and a very small percentage ending up with it. What, what are the kinds of things that you're testing or trying uh, and, and what, what sort of what the, what is your um, and, and your team's approach to solving this, this problem? Well, um, so we had, when we learned that, uh, 
that that statistic, that metric of a mil, over a million people coming in and only a few hundred thousand earning their diplomas. Um, around the same time, we also started working with some of the country's biggest employers on an education benefit plan. So Walmart, KFC, Taco Bell, like these very large employers. Because the labor market is so tight um, or it's so competitive, they want many of them wanted to add this educational benefit. They wanted to help upskill their employees, and so we thought it was this incredible opportunity, both for uh, for the businesses, certainly for our organization, and and also for employees. And we thought, okay, this is a way that you as an employee can be fully sponsored to get your to work on your high school diploma, and then find career opportunities beyond that. And so it was a model where we had like the study plans, we had um, sort of everything was paid for. You had a coach who kind of guided you through the process and really helped you understand like where were you stuck, where did you what did you need to do next, and um, because they had such big businesses sponsoring it, like for me, I just felt like <clears throat> I felt like we had these moments where. I was going to be Oprah. It was going to be like, you get a GED and you get a GED. <laughs> it was this incredible, like it just felt like this incredible opportunity. And so we built this program and, um, and I just want to point out like probably the biggest thing is that it was completely sponsored and completely free to the employee and with thousands and thousands of people sign up. And of them, um, the persistence rates were really low. We had a lot of people drop out. And we had many people drop out, like, just immediately after even signing up. They wow. didn't, didn't really engage at all. And, um, you know, we have these great coaches who are really warm and personal, personable and have incredible empathy. Um, you know, many of them have their own background in the GED world. Many of them are teachers. Many of them are people who actually have family members, spouses who went through the GED. And so it was, again, it was this thing where it was like, what is going on? And I will say for me at the time, like my background is engineering. Like my whole career has been about like teaching computers to talk to other computers and, you know, making frameworks and all this kind of stuff. And so it was really eye-opening for me. And I think actually for many people in the corporate world that like, you know, if somebody has this goal and you build this thing to help them achieve their goal and then you take price out of it, you take, you know, costs out of it, well, you know, then it's a no-brainer. And in fact, it's not a no-brainer. It's not. It's, it's a real, it's still a hugely high hurdle, right? There's some other friction point that is impeding these people from moving on. Price was one potential that obviously wasn't as big a factor as maybe we, we thought to begin with. So that, That's exactly right. Yeah. So we started doing ethnographic research and um, we started off with like, okay, who are, who is this population? And I will say again, like we, we've worked with for 70 years, the GED has been around for 75 years. So we worked with teachers, we worked with um, state agencies, we've worked with a lot of groups who work with students, but we ourselves as an organization had never actually done um, or hadn't done any recent research on like who who are our population. Hmm. So we did research. Uh, we started off with qualitative ethnographic research, and we talked to students all over the country. Um, and we really wanted, of course, to understand the relationships to the GED. But more than that, we wanted to understand you know their attitudes, their beliefs, their behaviors. What does a day look like? What were their aspirations? We just really wanted to build this holistic view of who they were. And we learned so much in that process. We learned how much we were operating by 
frankly, me, I knew how much I was operating by stereotypes and how much I think we organizationally operated that way. Um, and I feel like with each of these interviews, this, there was this consistent theme where I felt like um, if you took this person and you put them in a completely different environment growing up, they would have had a completely different outcome. And I think before I did that research, before I was involved in that research, um, I used to believe like, you know, nature versus nurture. I used to believe nature. This is, this is all about, you know, your biology and your brain chemistry and like all those things. But I'm convinced that most of the people that we worked with were people who, if they grew up the way I grew up or any of us grew up, the way our children grew up, um, they would have had completely different outcomes. They would have been your neighbors and they would have been PTA people with you and your coworkers. If, if the environment that they grew up in was different than what they experienced. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, so I will just say, I, one of the things that I, coming out of all of that research, we learned quite a bit um, and I could spend hours on that, but I, I am on a myth busting mission to help people sort of reframe how they think about adults who didn't finish high school. Well, let's so talk about some, yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about those myths. That, that, okay. That's a good tee up. Yeah. There's three common myths. I think the first one is the stereotype of an adult who didn't finish high school. And so when I say that, probably this conjures your own cognitive biases, your own sort of perspective about who that is. Um, what we learned is that uh, the stereotypes are often wrong. Like there definitely are people who fit the stereotype. Uh, but for every person like that, there's at least two or three people who, um, when you hear their background and you hear about why they left high school, it'll break your heart. Like you'll, there are stories of people being bullied, where safety's at risk, where people are um, taking care of family members. Um, and there were so many stories where you just like, I remember one that's seared in my brain of this boy who, uh, he was 19. Um, he actually had earned his GED and was now in, in, in community college and was breezing through this information technology um, um, uh, degree. But he said that when he was seven, his dad started calling him a loser. And his whole life, he was like his dad, every time he would see his dad, his dad would just remind him what a loser he was. And like, I have three sons, I, my youngest is eight. And like, just even to this day, when I think about the idea of what would make a person call a seven-year-old a loser? Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Can't, can't even imagine. And what does that do to a person? Well, we talk, I mean, we talk a lot, Tim and I, and uh, about self-identity and self-schemas and the impact that a parent, not, not just a random person, not somebody that you can potentially discount and say, oh, that I, they're just have some agenda or whatever it is, but a parent calling you a loser has to have a significant long-term impact on how that self how your self-identity is formed and thus and i'm sure you're you know this point on this is really you know you have to overcome so much more than just to get up to normal to to even start to participate so yeah to get to ground zero it, it take I, I can't imagine the the emotional fight the sort of the battle that you have to wage with yourself to to rid yourself of of that image of dad called me a loser. That's just. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was a pretty pervasive theme that like people's beliefs, like um, pe people's beliefs were driving what was happening. Their capabilities were almost secondary. Like that was, that, that actually takes me to my second myth. The Great. second 
myth on the myth busting is um, this idea that people don't want, they don't understand the value of education, they're not smart enough, like that whole genre. Um, and we found that that qualitatively and quantitatively, we found that that's not true, that um, education is baked into the American ethos. Like if you, that the, the relationship between education and success is just part of the American mindset. Like that's not something people can test. It's sort of, you know, apple pie and motherhood kind of stuff. <laughs> and so it's not about want or desire. It's about, um, you know, how do you do it and whether you believe you can do it. And that is, that's, I would say there's almost nothing more limiting than the belief piece. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, it, it reminds me of uh, the, one of my first jobs out of college was selling and, uh, and the sales manager would say, if you, whether you believe you can, or you believe you can't, excuse me, whether you believe you can, or you believe you can't, you're right. Yeah, that's and, right. And that's so powerful. That's just, that's just so powerful. Yeah. So this, this, the sense of, of, uh, of belief really plays into whether or not you're going to, you're going to make it happen or not. Right. Okay. One, we found something that we call um, uh, presumptive failure. And the idea, in, not every student has this, actually, it's probably fewer than 30 or 40%, but this notion that um, failure is preordained, that whatever I do, I'm going to fail. And if I even try and I fail, that will be further proof that I'm a failure. Yeah. That's a, that is, I mean, how do you overcome that <clears throat> at scale? Like, it's one thing, um, you know, if you're in a classroom and you have a really wonderful teacher, teachers can have an incredible impact. We all know that. Um, we also know that about 60% of students going through the GED program are people who don't want to go to class. These are people who are sort of self, self-sponsored. self They're going on their own. And the question for us is always around influencing behavior at scale. And particularly with that mindset, it's very difficult to change that kind of mindset at scale. Wow. Well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at, at that point, right? Because you, if you have this presumptive failure mentality, and it's 30, 30 to 40% of the population? Yeah, it is. It's disheartening, yes. I mean, that's that's a huge component of the, of, of the population you have that, you know, to your point, that, that they're going to be, there's confirmation bias in that belief then. And so the first setback is going to then, you know, double down on that, belief set that they're already holding and so 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 how have you well actually let's get to the third myth uh, yes thank you and so um <clears throat> yeah you're right about confirmation bias uh, we use that term all the time um the third one is <clears throat> the idea that the ged is kind of the easy path out or it's sort of the shortcut and um what we found when we overhauled the test the overhauled the whole program a few years ago was that the shift to career and college skills, career and co college readiness and critical thinking skills, um, the efficacy and the outcomes have been incredible. So we are finding that almost half, about 45% of the people who earn their diplomas go on um, into post-secondary ed, so into vocational school, community college, um, wow. four-year universities, in fact. And then, but even more than that, that 90% of them are persisting from semester to semester. And so that is the highest persistence rate of any demographic group. Um, and so it, what we're, we found that is just so equally as heartening as the disheartening things that we said before, what's so exciting is that people like in this process, they have a transformation about what they believe about themselves. 
And as you start to have success, you know, success begets success. Mm-hmm. And this, like, um, there's so many beautiful quotes, like just really inspirational quotes of people who, like, where they, what they believed before, and then going through this journey, and now what they believe they're capable of afterwards, and then, and then having the courage to enroll into post-secondary ed when they're the first ones in their whole, you know, history and their family has ever done that. It's amazing. So, um, you know, I feel like this easy path out, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like this is just an opportunity for people who, for whatever reason, the first time didn't work. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a gift to be able to work on that. So Serena, when did you, when did the curriculum change? How how many years ago was that? In 2014. So about, yeah, four years ago. Four four or five years ago. Cause I think again, to many, uh, you know, again, my, myself included in this is we have a perception of GED, and I don't know if it would be the easy way up, but of almost the lesser degree than actually even a high school um, diploma. And what I'm hearing is that is not the case, that, that this is a revamped program, even if it wasn't in the past, it definitely now isn't even more so. Um, and, and some of the stats you gave are, are quite impressive. And so, yeah, yeah it, that shift, hopefully, as you said, that myth uh, will be busted. And um, so all of our listeners, make sure you transfer that out to your friends and neighbors and make sure they tell their friends and neighbors. And soon we will have a, a changed changed ideal about what this, this stands for. So yeah. we'll get our own Coleman's boat going here. We'll, yeah. we'll start pushing <laughs> off the individual and hoping that we can make a change to the, to the, uh, the macro of the population. That's right. I mean, one of the big goals is to destigmatize it because I think, you know, looking at it as a marker of fortitude and resilience rather than shame. And that is, uh, you know, that'll take time to change that. But um, I so, do think at least anecdotally, we see that. Yeah. So, uh, so, so how's it going? I guess you know. Uh, how how are you measuring your destigmatization? How are you how are you currently measuring uh, your your success rates for persistence? Um, and and, and what what kind of results are you are you are you seeing? That's a great question. So we um, in that corporate program that we have. That's when we that was our sort of playground for starting to use behavioral tactics. Okay. And I will just say sort of. Um, at this point, we've tripled persistence in that program. Uh, we actually have hit 3,000 graduates in that program. So we've seen really material success. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. And I think it was a great way for us to build um, credibility for behavioral science in our organization. Because, you know, the very definition of a nudge is that something that seems inconsequential, you know, makes a big difference. If you're going to your your um, CEO and you're saying, "Here, I need a substantial amount of capital for investment for something that seems inconsequential," you know, <laughs> I mean, they, yeah. like you know, I wouldn't make that decision. Like I, I, you know, I'm a reader, so I'd read like um, just for fun. I read like Thinking Fast and Slow and Nudge. Like all of these things were sort of just books of just you know zeitgeisty kind of nerdy books, and um, and so as I was as like I was looking at what we were facing as a business and then this whole, this whole area of research, bringing it together and making the case was like, I will say one of my own professional highlights, just like building credibility for an idea that just doesn't maybe, you know, if you're working with people who are finance people or traditional economists or engineers, um, you know, it just doesn't seem like this is something you want to spend money on. Well, so, 
Yeah, go ahead. So we've had this conversation, Tim and I, because we do we work with inside the corporate world all the time, and and we run into this exact issue. And I think some of our listeners probably are facing this exact issue. So help us understand. Give us what you were able to do in order to get those um, executives who have that financial background mindset who might not go wait, you, you want to spend how much to do something that, as you said, seems inconsequential, yeah. Yeah. but really has this outcome. So what were some of the, the methods that you used to help right. drive that change in their, their belief? Yeah. Um, right. Because, because they're comparing this against things that seem like significant revenue generators. And so here's the sort of, sort of in the clouds, mushy kind of thing versus <laughs> a real product. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a, I, I will say if I were in my CEO's shoes, I would have exactly the same questions. And so, in, uh, so I was, we were lucky because we were able to take this corporate program and just use that as a sandbox. And we were able to try all kinds of different ideas. Um, everything from removing friction and making it easy and making it convenient into trying real nudges. And then um, we did quite a bit with the mindset work. We did a lot with trying to help people sort of really um, reposition how they think and really sort of focus on the non-cognitive pieces. Because that is, in my mind, it's one of the biggest markers of sort of your, your future potential is you know, the non-cognitive pieces. Like, can you communicate? Do you really have high agency? Do you have self-efficacy? All of those sorts of things. So we built what we call the glide nudge challenge framework, where we really wanted to focus in on just friction, removing friction early on, because that is just so fundamental um, and making things like easy, making them familiar, making them emotionally resonant, mm -hmm. um, you know, just beautiful, making them aesthetically appealing, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so we just started very small. Like we started making little tweaks here and there. We were finding that these little tweaks were having enough of an impact that it sort of started snowballing over time. So um, because we were able to do so much in the sandbox environment, and it was very, I will say it was a lot of duct tape and, you know, we were, uh, we had these advisors who could try tactics. Like we could, we could scale because, or we could try more things because we actually had so much human involvement. Yeah. I feel like the bigger piece was making the decision to invest in the non-corporate environment, which is where we get a million people into the pipeline every year, because that was really about trying to automate and build things at scale and really build digital platforms that are aligned to these concepts. Um, so because we were able to actually use this corporate program to um, see incremental growth, and then at some one point we hit like a thousand graduates, and then we hit 2,000 graduates, and then we saw persistence triple. So we were able to build this case over the course of a year where it was like, wow, you know, uh, loss aversion, for example. So if you're in the corporate program, um, you have to, you have to have, you have sort of a weekly, uh, weekly study requirement. Like you need to stay engaged because it's, GD participation is very often episodic for people. They're on and off, in and out. And so we wanted to ensure that people were really consistently sticking with it so that they didn't lose the material that they were learning um, and also build momentum. Mm -hmm. And uh, so with that, we had originally framed it as like this thing to gain. You can gain your high school diploma. You can use this as a way to help get a promotion, all of those sorts of things. Um, it was very aspirational. And then we did an experiment where we said, okay, let's, everybody who comes into the program is now a student. So they, before they were in this program, they were somebody who didn't have a high school diploma, but now they are 
they have the label and identity of a student. And then if you want to stay a student in this program, you need to stay and you need to keep up with the weekly study, your weekly homework and your weekly study requirements. And if you don't, you lose your student status, you lose your eligibility. It's the same thing. Um, but that reframing it as the, the identity piece and the potential loss of identity was incredible. It was incredible how many people felt like, I just, I, I gotta do this. I, I, I need to be a student. My mom wants me to be, you know, I need to do this. Um, I mean, it's stuff like that where I just felt like, holy moly, this seems, I, I can't even explain this, you know? Like, I mean, the research says this would work. It works, which is great. Um, <laughs> but when you explain it to somebody, they just, you know, in fact, if anything, people will hear loss and they'll think, that doesn't sound like a nice way to frame things to your customer, right? It sounds sounds kind of mean. Yeah. But but you went from you went from removing the friction to making to doing all these things to make it easy, easy, easy. You made it attractive. Uh, there's some so, but now you're bringing it into sort of a, a social side, and you're saying we, we're you're identified as a student. You are a student now, and and you risk losing this. Like the nudge is just a. A beautiful, uh, it is, it certainly is playing to loss version, but it's starting to kind of play on this, this growing new sense of self schema and self identity that they're just growing in to say, you could lose, you could lose this precious little thing that you, you've come to grasp. That's, and, that's terrific. And I think there's an interesting piece on that because there's the loss aversion side of it, but then you also get into this, um, you know, this, this hyperbolic discounting component where the gain is so far out in the future where that loss of my identity is an immediate component. So you're no longer having to, to, you know, get people to envision a year or six months, even, you know, down the road, this is an immediate response. And so that visceral element, that emotional component, uh, not doubles down on that, that loss aversion component. So fantastic. Yeah. That's right. cool. And, and on that hyperbolic discounting, we've definitely taken the model that to reward the effort, not the outcome, because you're right, the outcome is so far away. And so just the sheer act of showing up this week and doing it this week is something to be proud of. And, you know, sort of, we've been using streaks and trying to do novelty, like even in texts, like, you know, a cute, a cute little text picture, just something that's unexpected that sort of just reminds you that you have, that you have made the effort um, to take note of that. So you had this you had this testing lab of the corporate component that you were able to to run some mini experiments on almost to a, a way of thinking about it. And now you're you're incorporating some of that into the larger um, mainstay GED program. Have you seen similar results in in what you're doing there, or has it been too early? Where are you at in that? Oh, we have we've seen really good results, but I will say it's humbling. I mean, I'm I've heard this. Before I started any of this work, I've heard many people say, wait a second, just, just know that you're not going to get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. so we had gone through this corporate program and we had done our strategic prioritization for 2018 and where are we going to spend our investment cat, our money. And um, we decided this was a big area of focus. We were going to change, you know, for those million people who come in, we're going to overhaul this process and make it, you know, easy and aesthetic and incorporate nudges and all those sorts of things. And we use lean innovation, so we went into it with a very sort of thoughtful, you know, experiment our way to what's going to work. Um, rapid experimentation models, and we did a lot of like, 
did all these Google design sprints and we did all these sessions where we were like doing, uh, getting qualitative feedback and iterating, iterating until we felt like we had something we could, we should really start building with our, with our engineering team. And, and then we, we did all of this work and then we finally launched, uh, we did an AB experiment where we had the old experience and then this new baseline experience that we gave to 10% of the population. And we had done so, we had done all the right things. Like we had consulted the research, we had used everything we learned from the corporate program, rapid experimentation, ethnic, it's like buzz, you know, buzzword bingo. We did everything and we launched it. And then we, you know, we needed the data to cure. We needed like three, six weeks for the data to cure. And then, um, I was sort of like the team, I think, didn't even want me to see the metrics. They were like, just read a wait. You just need to let we we needed to be statistically significant. You know, I'm one of those. I was like the executive, like, hey, let me let me in the data. And they're like, no, just like, let's just wait. And then we got the data back after like, I mean, I kid you not, like a year of planning. And like, you know, from this time that we started getting the investment to the time that we delivered is maybe not a year, maybe eight months. Um, and the data was the same. The old experience and the new experience were the same. There was no difference. And I was floored because, I mean, I'm a humble person, but I really believe, I believe we had done all the right things. Um, and so we went back and we, uh, we have a lean innovation consultant who we work with. And he was like, wait a second, what, why did you do X, Y, and Z? What about this? And so we made, we made tweaks. Again, it seems so inconsequential. We made these tweaks, let the data cure again, and then we saw a 20% jump in conversions. And, you know, again, like to me, it's, it's art and science and maybe a little bit of magic. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but that was amazing. And that was something where we were like, okay, yes, this is working the way that we, that we um, this is moving directionally in the way that we expected. Um, and then now we're just sort of in a cadence of doing more and more experiments. So right now we're doing some like, um, you know, intention, intention setting experiments around goal setting and trying to be um, really concrete about like, uh, you know, sort of what are, what and when and where are you going to be? I don't know if you've yeah. seen the loop model, the wish outcome, obstacle plan. Yeah. So experimenting with things like that. Um, so we've seen, I mean, I would say maybe the net point is a 20% growth in conversion relatively quickly, but uh, enough anxiety and indigestion for the version before that of like, really, you know, I think Tim and I have seen this too with corporate clients who are looking to say, well, what did you do over at company B and let's put that in at our company. Cause obviously it was successful over there and now we just want to replicate it here. And every time I always am very cautious about that saying, yeah, we have the underlying bones to it, but it's going to be different here. And, and to your part, you know, it's art, science, and a, and a wee bit of magic dust on it, right? And and you need to tweak those things. And and sometimes, you know, I, I you were in a good position where you got the data and you were still able to tweak, whereas sometimes I think too often corporate uh, organizations may just get that initial um, result and go, see, you know, the, the, the naysayers that, you know, were begrudgingly did this say, look, it didn't work, therefore, and they just discount it without going that next step or maybe even the next step after that. And so uh, it's a good lesson, I think, for all of us to learn is that it's not, it's, 
it's not just cookie cutter. You can't just cook here and there. And what worked in a corporate environment, you might need to tweak for the general environment. And what worked at corporate A doesn't always work at corporate B. Well, so. you, you also talked about uh, nature and nurture, right? It's not nature versus nurture. It's really both, right? So, so we may know that loss aversion is a powerful tool. We may know that that um, that all of our all of these biases that we talk about all the time are present. But how you apply them has to do with the environment, has to do with the, the nurturing side, right? So they're, these are, they're baked into our human condition, but how we apply them does change from situation to situation. And, and what I so applaud and what you and your team are doing, Sarita, is you're continuing to tweak, you're continuing to, to play with how do we apply these in these situations, right? And that, that's really terrific. Just out of curiosity, I'm just curious, uh, after, after you get the data and you realize that the old and the new are basically identical, what, can I ask, what were the, what were the couple of tweaks that, that all of a sudden uh, increased the uh, adoption rate by 20%? So we had, um, we are sort of like, we're retrofitting, we're retrofitting guesses. So we saw the data and now we just have guesses as to why that changed. Um, one of the things we did was we, um, so when people came in, they had this brand new, beautiful look and feel and sort of like the things that were, we really focused on people's mental models. What are the first questions they have when they first come into the GED world? And we really position those high and we try to give an overview of like, what is, what are you sort of, what does this journey look like? Um, the tweak that our lean innovation consultant suggested is if you have people who come in and they just want to go get started on their GED testing, maybe they've already been in class, maybe they're just ready to go for whatever reason, just ask them what they're here to do first before you inundate them with all of these like practice questions <laughs> and see stories and, you know, cause it's very, very rich content, which is great, but some people that's distracting. And, you know, sort of one of the key rules of thumb in application development is don't distract your user. Like, you know, what are they here to do? Let them do that thing. Yeah. Um, in our research, we identified four mindsets four four persona mindsets and, um, one of them we call the determined mindset. These are people who are going to come in and they're just going to do it. Uh, for whatever reason, they have really high intrinsic motivation and relatively high self-efficacy. And so for those people, we don't want to slow them down. And we knew, we knew going into this that we had our goal, the people who are going to do it are going to do it. So don't slow them down and focus on these other three mindsets, these other three personas who want it and see value in it, but but are having different kinds of struggles about, or not, not maybe conscious struggles, but unconscious struggles about, you know, what they need to do and when they need to do it. And so just that switch, what are you here to do today? That was probably the single most influential thing like that. That's what allowed us to let the people who were here to move, let them just move, don't stop them. And then convert the people who weren't really sure what they wanted to do. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Going from explain or this is how to build the watch to uh, all I want to know is the time. Yes. You know, yeah. that, that, that's absolutely brilliant. That really is. All right. Terrific. So, so Sarita, you got me interested. We have a determined mindset or persona. What are the other three that you've yes, got? Yes, definitely. Now I'm, now I'm just sitting here going, okay, what could these be? Uh, I want to hear the next mindset is the family go-to. Um, okay. Demographically, these are often women. They're often moms and they're often caregivers. And um, 
they tend to be, they tend to have, again, really self high, high self-efficacy. They're often the hubs of their family. Um, in, in our ethnographic research, I met multiple women who like didn't finish high school and had siblings with master's degrees or had their own businesses. And they felt like um, <clears throat> their role in the family was to support their siblings. Like my sister has her master's degree, but she, her life is really tough. She really needs my help. And so being this emotional supporter and just sort of tasky kind of supporter too, uh, you know, and they often help with multiple generations. They help with their parents, their siblings, their own children. And so there's this very strong sense of um, that, like my role in life is to help other people. And it feels very, uh, it feels like <clears throat> selfish for me to actually focus on my own education when, you know, other people need my time. And so that's a, that's a tough mindset because it's this, you know, because they are really valuable to their families and they are really capable and they see their role as role models. Like they see that particularly for their children, like, you know, how do you hold your children to the standard when you yourself haven't finished? And they see that. Um, and so with that group, we've learned that there's a lot in just like social support. So being the combination of what are other people doing? And then also how do other people see me? Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, we call that the family go-to. Okay. The next one is um, the uh, disheartened. And this is that presumptive failure group that I mentioned earlier. These are people who, again, are often intellectually really capable, um, but their beliefs are the things that really impede them. Um, and again, I've, we've met so many people who like just in the process of going through, um, studying and seeing that they are capable, like what a transformation it's been, like how you feel at the end of this versus how you feel at the beginning, mm. just that sense of pride and accomplishment and capability and the future. Like, oh my gosh, I, I really do have control over my future. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth group is, I think maybe more of the stereotype, that's what we call the here and now. And this is people, they often tend to be young, um, and they're often people who are just actually extremely capable, but they don't necessarily see a need for education. They think that there might be other paths. Very often they want to be entrepreneurs or start their own businesses. Um, and uh, one thing that we've seen over and over is that uh, if you're in this here and now persona that you know, you're 18 and you have a car and you have a great job and you're making money and all these things, and your friends go off to college, those suckers go off to college, and they're not making any money and they're poor, but then at a certain point they graduate and now they're making real money and then they're doing better than you and you see this gap. Um, and that can be really, that can be something that's really influential in moving people. Yeah. We also learned that those mindsets that people can move from one mindset to another. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite stories was um, some, this, this young man named uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a here and now person. Like he, um, He's living in his mom's basement and his mom was like, come on, you, you're capable of so much more. Go out, you know, get your diploma and like, you can do so much more than this. And Joseph was like, I have enough money for beer and for pot. I have a place to stay. I'm good. And so one day he's out walking and he trips over somebody and um, he's like, looks that down and he sees this guy that he knows from the neighborhood. And he goes to shake him. He's like, sorry, man. And he realizes that the man that he tripped over was, uh, had passed away. And um, Joseph was like, he saw his future. Like he was telling us, like this is an incredible storyteller. And he was telling us that like, he just, you know, it's like the ghost of Christmas future. Like he had just, oh my gosh. Wow. This, is, this is what's gonna happen to me. And then he immediately enrolled in classes. He went to his local adult education center, 
Um, and he got his, and he passed very, because he was a really smart guy. He actually passed with, he actually earned college credit because you can actually earn college credit with the GED. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was amazing. It was an amazing story. So that's those good. personas are, we're, I think that's another big area for us to explore is how do we make sure that the messaging and the tactics are really honed to maybe somebody's mindset. It's, it's interesting because it, it, obviously that event triggered that transformation, had an emotional response inside of them. And I know, at least in the work that I've done, that emotional response, it, it's vital to getting people to, to sustain change and kind of keep things moving. But oftentimes it, are, it is those happenstance components that trigger that and so it's hard to manufacture yes which is tough because you know if you got that moment that person he had the intelligence he you know and, and he just needed that little a little push or the little nudge or push instead of a nudge instead of push and, and but you can't manufacture those all the time that's exactly right like you know if somebody could figure that out that's like a billion dollar business like yeah how do you do a ghost of Christmas? You could call a business ghost of Christmas future. And you could there you go. Uh, we got something. We'll work on this. All right. Like so. I'm, I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> we, we'll include you in Sarita as we, we brainstorm this. We'll, we'll, we'll get this going. So, yes. and with that, Tim, I'm sure you are dying right now. Um, and Sarita and I are both trembling because uh, <laughs> it's that time when you always start to talk about some musicals element and being in Nashville as you are, you probably are uh, primed to talk about music. Well, definitely. You know, this, is, this isn't just like, uh, you know, casually listening. This is a place where uh, people are listening to music here in Nashville, which, is, which it, for me is, is wonderful. But Sarita, um, in the time that I've known you, you are one of the most um, intense and i mean that in such a positive way by the way but you have such intensity and passion in your life and and so i was i'm wondering is there any music in your life that either primes your intensity or primes you to get away you got, i know you're a yoga practitioner and do you do you use music as a way to 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 pull yourself away from from the the, the passion and the intensity or to move toward it just just curious i think both i think that's a Gosh, what a great question. That is not the question I anticipated. Um, <laughs> asked me what's my theme song? And I was so embarrassed. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, for both, I think. Um, I, I like, I love, uh, I love a really broad assortment of music. Like for me right now, like if I'm just like needing to like sort of stew an emotion, I listen to Lemonade by Beyonce, which I think is a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> But there are many times when I'm just blue and I just need to be upbeat. I just like, just need that little bit of, you know, if it's too late for caffeine, so I'll put on like New Order or something like that. Um, and then, and then sometimes just to sort of wind myself down. Like I, uh, like if I'm going to give a big presentation, I've been listening to um, uh, Vampire Weekend, Modern, Modern Vampires of the City. I think that's the album. I, yeah. that, if you haven't listened to that album, it is so beautiful. The name is not great. I think the vampire name is a little overdone, but so beautiful cool. so all three all of those things I feel like um for me it's like it's like medit it's better than meditation for me because it just like it can transport me within like two or three minutes it can kind of get me to where I want to be yeah isn't that fabulous yeah. see that that to me is um 
is why I, I, I love the musical side of me because you see that music has this instantaneous, can have this instantaneous effect on people. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah and, and the music, I mean, New Order and, and Vampire Weekend, you know, both of those are very emotive bands. And yeah. so as you're thinking about that, and, and it's interesting because Tim and I have had these conversations before uh, and, and I tend to gravitate to, those types of that type of music as well. Um, and then I go off even, you know, if I need to grind and get in, in I, I go even deeper on some of the, the you really. You, you go a lot deeper on that. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's that? Yeah, that's some industrial kind of, you know, headbanging stuff from back when I was in high school and, uh, and so still listen to every once in a while. Like Nine Inch Nails, that kind of stuff? Nine Inch Nails, um, you know, My Life with Thrill Kill Cult. Um, you know, again, these names of bands that sometimes you go, yeah, all right, but they're representative sometimes, you know. Um, so anyway, it, it, music has that ability, and I think you you have, you know, identified that to get you there quickly, which I think is one of the values of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's terrific. Sarita, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Behavioral Groups. We thank you for your time today. Thank and you. thank you for the work you've done. I mean, the, the, the stuff you're doing with this, I think, is, you know, it goes beyond making some, you know, profit better for some company. You are changing people's lives. And so that's just, it blows me away that people, you know, do this and, and you're doing a great job. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and thank you guys. And then I, I just want to really thank you guys for um, building this community in the Twin Cities. And I, it sounds like all over the country. So I just really, I really appreciate that. I, I, I suspect that running this is, does the opposite for your net worth that you would want it to do. At least in the <laughs> um, and so I, I would say the same thing. Like, I really appreciate that you're putting your time and your passion into this. It's wonderful. It it's our fun spot, so we, we enjoy it. So thank you. It is our passion. Yeah, thank you, Serena. We are rolling. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our pasty, cheesy heads. Uh, wow. <laughs> was not, I was totally not expecting that one. Come on. I didn't, you know. <laughs> Which is great, right? I mean, that... <laughs> completely caught me off guard you know i'm Um, from wisconsin i'm a cheesehead i love that actually i i really that's something like that's a rabbit hole to go down because i'm fascinated by how uh wisconsinites are so comfortable with identifying as cheeseheads and putting a triangle foam cheese hat (laughs) on their head yeah, like, when was that ever a good idea? <laughs> and it's celebrated. It is celebrated. So the, there is a story. I have no um, element if it's valid or not, but the person who was wearing their cheese head and they got in a car wreck and it actually saved their life because they were oh, wearing their cheese on. head coming home come from a game. On. So, you know, oh. that is a positive component of the cheese head. You need to wear one because it's a safety feature. See, Oktoberfest is going on right now in Munich. And like celebrating your cultural heritage with, you know, great beer or, you know, or Lederhosen. Like those are really great. Ex- those are great expressions. Big foam triangles of pretend cheese that people wear on their head <laughs> is is less than great. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so, okay, so we're talking about Sarita. T- 
tell tell me about your uh, your first observation. This was a great conversation. It was a great conversation. I, I think first off, I was I was surprised at uh, this component of of how many people started the GED and actually didn't finish. Yeah. And I think the the other piece that really just got to me, and I think is really an important part, and it's stuff that we know, right? Is that they thought that hey, if we provide the GED for free for people, that if we give them this course and say, hey, here, you know, you you work for us, we want you to complete this, it's free, you get all the support, you actually get a personal support person with that, and yet that still didn't really move the needle. It's that what we think is motivational, what we think is inhibiting people from doing things often isn't really what is inhibiting them or stopping them from doing what we're what we're wanting them to do. This is classic. Uh, this is a classic example of how we don't know our own motivations and why we misattribute uh, our own belief in what our motivations are to other people. Exactly. Okay, so I, I, I think that I that money must be the optimal motivator. Yeah. It's just it's just not. Right. It and, absolutely and- gets us up and out of bed and going to work every day. But it is not the go the extra mile. Right. And, and you think about this in this case. Oh, these people don't have enough money to pay for the GED. Oh, and right. therefore, right. The, that's, the, that's what's holding them back. Obviously, that's not the case. There were these other factors that came into play that get at more of those intrinsic self-identity components that we talked about. You know, how do, how do those people who have not completed high school, how do they view themselves and those mindsets that Sarita talked about, which I thought was absolutely fan- fascinating. Um, yeah, you know, should, let, let's go through those. So it's, there was it's, the, it's worth repeating. It is. So there was that determined mindset. So those are the people that 20% in the beginning probably, yeah. I don't know how many it is, but they were going to do it, right? They're there. They're there. It's, yeah. it's, they, they have that, that desire. There is that intrinsic component that they're going to get there. They're going to do it. Maybe that money helped them and being able to, to overcome that, that problem, whatever that was. But that, that's a component. That's, that's one subset out of these four that they have identified. And then there's the family go-to. Family go-to. This was a big shocker for you, wasn't this it? This was. I mean, we talked about this before. It was, you think about this and you go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I had never thought about, oh, I hadn't thought a lot about GED in, in general. But the fact that there are these people who, you know, it's not just their own children. Right? They might have had a child early and thus that was prevented them from from completing high school or they have and, adult kids or they have adult kids yeah but where you know sarita talked about the story of the the woman whose sister is you know getting a graduate degree and she felt responsible for the sister's the kids. sister's kids or, or yeah. making sure that the sister was able to get her graduate degree right. and yet she couldn't even take the time to really focus in on herself that is i i a whole dynamic that I had not even thought of. Yeah, and so yeah, that, w- that was that was new to me as as well. And uh, and regrettably, I succumbed to the instant stereotype of oh, this is a this is a, 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 probably a young woman, but possibly a young man with uh, with a son or daughter, mm-hmm. and they need to just take care of their own children. Yeah. It's not. It's that's only one portion of it. Yeah. And my stereotypical view just got blown up uh, in that in that part of the discussion. It did. It did. Then there's the disheartened. You know, yeah. and those are people that 
I, again, I think some of Sarita's work on mindset and how do you get people to think of themselves as students as opposed to, um, you know, I forget what, what would be the other component of that, but thinking of themselves well, as students. As, and so, well, they think of themselves as losers because the, the self-identity and the self-schema has come from this generation of you're no good. Or, or we're no good. This is our family is no good. Or your father was no good. Or your mother was no good. And you're no. You know, there's this continuous uh, and constant um, reiteration of these negative messages. It is disheartening. It's enormously dis disheartening. Well, and what's really fascinating on that, if you think about this, if you think this through, which I think is one of the pieces that Sarita is doing on this, but. If people, if these kids, and I, I'll say kids, they're not necessarily kids, even as, as young adults, that for their life have been told that they're losers, that they are no good, that they can't do it. And yet some of the work that Sarita is doing in how they're just twisting, framing the, the way they talk about this, getting people to reassess their own self-identity, their own self-schemas around learning is fascinating that you can overcome a lifetime of negative reinforcement by just doing some of these well, different pieces, these this, glides, these nudges, these challenges. Doesn't this remind you of Rob Burnett's discussion yes. of the teaspoon hustle, right? Where, I, it reminds me of the story of uh, when the bartender said, if we just promote this young person from, uh, from, a, from a wait staff to a host or a hostess, their world has changed. Yes. They are in a new dimension. They, their worldview has changed considerably. And, uh, you know, for me, you know, with graduate degrees and all this kind of stuff, I'm looking at that like, that's not relevant to me, but to them, that's huge. Right. And, and, and Sarita and her team are packing real power into their, their framing of this stuff, I think, in a meaningful way. And I think those small changes are really... Sorry. Get your phone, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Those small changes, you know, it's we're professional here. We're, we're totally professional. <laughs> it's, in, it's all in the studio. It's all in the beautiful studio, which Sarita didn't get to see, and we'll have to invite her over for we'll, coffee we, or tea. We, after three, tea. Bef <laughs> you know, before 10, coffee, right? <laughs> something, yeah, like something like that. Anyway, the... Uh, those small changes that they're able to make can have a significant impact. And then there's the here and now mindset yeah. that she talked about, which is probably the more stereotypical mindset of, of people, but they're focused in on here and now. And so even getting them, though, to start thinking about their uh, self-identity and, and moving beyond that, I think, is, is really and powerful components. It so. is. Well, because hyperbolic discounting is prevalent in all of us. Oh, yeah. How are we going to deal with a, a future that is abstract when we're dealing with a uh, an immediate today that is in, uh, concrete and and full of struggle? It's um, getting, overcoming that is uh, is huge. And I really applaud Sarita and, um, and, and her efforts to actually make that change. Yeah. Were there any other things that you kind of had thought were... You interesting. Know, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, when she when she talked about the idea that the the job market as a whole doesn't actually require a high school diploma or a GED in the United States. It, it's it's not actually a requirement in general, but there are specific jobs that do require it. Yeah. And there's 
So there's a lot of people that venture out only to find themselves unable after not completing or matriculating from high school, they find themselves unable to get hired. And and there's really, what, what went through my mind, Kurt, was that there's two options at that point. One is drop out or just take the sucky jobs. Yeah. Or get revved up, uh, find yourself uh, a new path and go after the GED to advance yourself. And and I think that those are, that's a huge decision point that, that people have at, at the moment that, well, not the moment, but as they're going through their life, is it going to be, um, will I, am I continuing to suffer in crappy jobs or am I going to put a lot of effort into a short-term thing over the next couple of years to finish this GED so that there's the possibility that I could get something better? It, it's this ability to actually envision your future self and envisioning your future self in a different environment than the track or the road that you're on right now. So it's a key piece, right? I mean, isn't that what really can change the motivation so that they actually search out getting the GED and doing some of those different components within it? So I think that's a fascinating component, but I'm wondering if some of that comes into play that there are a million people who sign up for the GED, but how many millions are out there that have not matriculated, that haven't, that don't have a high school diploma that could be going for the GED? And what is it that's going to be that trigger for them to get revved up, motivated, rejuvenated, whatever it would be in order to go and even try to attempt to go to this next level? Yeah. Okay, so uh, so what about music? Mm. So we've been talking about high school. So, Kurt, what is your most memorable high school concert? Ooh, high school concert. You're yeah, talking back in my, you know, my headbanging yeah. days. Oh, headbanging. Okay, I was thinking when dinosaurs ruled the earth, but this is even before that. This is before... This is before Cro-Magnon man evolved. You, you are older than I am, so you're just... Just by a wee <laughs> But you're still older. <laughs> and I always will be. Yes, you always will be. Um, so, I, you know, you have this affinity towards some of your first concerts, right? Right. And so right. Um, two of them that I remember, uh, one was Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I... And it was just Ozzy. It, it, it was Ozzy. It was not right. Black Sabbath. It wasn't, okay. wasn't any of that. And it was... Um, was it a great after, show? After it was right after Randy Rhodes had died, um, and he had shaved his head, so he had really short hair. So it was really kind of this juxtaposition of me having envisioned Ozzy up there, headbanger with long hair, and he had short hair, but he was still rocking it out. And so, was he biting the heads off bats? He was not biting the heads off bats. Okay, all of that kind of stuff. But he still had the weird walk and and all that stuff. But that was a that was a great concert. Uh, and then my other one um, that you know is is kind of stands out. Um, and I'm drawing a blank. I had it in my head, and I'm just drawing a blank on it. So anyway, that was Ozzy. Okay. We'll stay with Ozzy. Okay. I'll come back to it in, in a minute. Okay. You well, know, my memory is I'm getting old. Those dinosaur days, you know, they're a long time ago. <laughs> 
They are, but these are the vivid moments. These, these are the ones that are supposed to come back, right? These are supposed to come back. They're supposed to come back. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Uh, okay, so... Your, your favorite high school concert. Well, I, uh, there's two categories, right? One was like like the best show. One was sort of the, the best concert event okay. for, for me. And then the other was the most vivid. And I'll start with the most vivid. And, okay. And that was... Um, before my sophomore year in high school, I was able to uh, have a friend of mine get a backstage pass to go see Stephen Stills. Okay. And in those days, a backstage pass was actually, and quite literally, a backstage pass. It was a, it was a pass to actually be on the stage. And, um, and so I actually wandered out back, and I met uh, Guillermo Ghiacchetti, who was his uh, guitar tech at the time, with all of the guitars lined up, the, my, you know, Maybell, the, that, you know, 1942 D45, which is, in my mind, it was just history, just looking at that, that guitar. It's and, like dry leaves in a hurricane going right <laughs> over my head, because, but... It so, sounds fascinating. And then, and and um, and then, I actually got to stand right next to the uh, the tour manager, okay, who was standing on stage, and he just looked at me, and he, you know, I was not quite sixteen years old, okay, and he just said, "You stand right here." <laughs> and I'm like, like, "Don't move, don't right? move." Okay, and I'm like, yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. That was that was that was pretty great. So that's the vivid one. That was the most vivid. Well, yeah. that I mean obviously you're you're in a spot where very few people ever actually get to be. Right. You're seeing these mass these guitars that you have this affinity towards with with uh, a a performer who is my hero at, okay. at that point in my life okay. as a songwriter and guitar player and singer. Stephen okay. Stills was amazing. Uh, and, but the the most amazing concert was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road Tour. Okay. And that was because it was, you know, he changed outfits six times and <laughs> had the Memphis Horns touring with him. And so there was not just a, a band with, you know, um, you know, Olsen and Jones and Johnson and, and guys who were just super talented in and of the band themselves. But he had he had the Memphis Horns and he had a, a whole chorus of, of singers with him and costumes and fog machines and it was it was overwhelming and it that was entertainment. Okay. I realized that wow, a concert can be so much more than just the music. You can you can you can roll out the all this stuff and make it a really great show. So my memory has come back. Thank you, Uncle Google. <laughs> And, and I will give, I, uh, I'm i going to say this so our listeners can maybe even guess beforehand. Oh, a little. So I Googled, I Googled one-armed drummer. Can you guess what, what band I am talking about? I, sh- I should know the answer. Head-banging band. I know, I should know this answer. And actually, this first concert, he still had two arms, so... I'm drawing a blank. So it's Def Leppard. Okay. And uh, the drummer is Rick Allen. Rick Allen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, long story short, Def Leppard opened up for Blackfoot. I had no clue who Blackfoot was. They're just a um, train train song that, that was a big hit at the time back in the early 80s. And Def uh, Leppard was the and opening Def, act? Def Leppard was the opening act. Wow. It was just wow. after their first album came out. And so I had, you know fallen in love with that first album and gone and so me and my buddy went and we we rushed up to the the front you know back in the days when you could still rush the stage because we were in this kind of you know college uh, 
you know, gymnasium type so, thing. Like no floor seating. It was just open. Mm, or, it was the or... chairs there, but there was a big front and we just rushed oh, okay. and, and did that. And so it was fantastic. It was just one of those, again, vivid from being right up front. And again, most of the people were there to see Blackfoot. So we got right up in front and we we're jamming out and to uh, Def Leppard. To Def Leppard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So that's my crazy high school concert days. So so with that, listeners. <laughs> Sorry to bore you. No, that, well, I don't know. I'm that's what that's why I like these conversations. <laughs> I like this. Um and, and someone has recently told me that they're going to forward me a book on why uh, like high school experience or early memories of music are so important to us, because I'm interested in, in studying that. So, yeah, that's, there's some um, psychology behind there that. There is so. some psychology behind it, so I'm, right. I'm curious about that. But. We'll talk about that on a later episode, I'm sure. Yeah, but thank you all for listening. Thanks for joining us in the Behavioral Grooves. And uh, we've got more wonderful guests coming up soon. And so we hope you we hope you join us. And if you haven't already, please share this episode or another episode with a good friend. Thank you.